Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. And as a new year and new decade settles in, we take the opportunity to look back and reflect as we hear from some of the guests and a variety of the topics that featured on our programme in the last 12 months. Well, back in March, we marked International Women's Day with a multi-faith panel to discuss the voice of women in religion. Our panel included Rabbi Baroness Julia Neuberger, Senior Rabbi of Britain's oldest reform synagogue in West London. Well, I was the second woman to be ordained in the UK as a rabbi. I was the first to have a congregation of my own. I mean, you know, I was a bit of a freak when I was first ordained. And I remember all those interviews, those newspaper interviews, where people would say things, journalists would say to me things like, well, what do you wear? And you'd want to say through clenched teeth clothes. Um, but actually, you, you, you know, you'd, you'd do a sort of deal and you'd answer those questions about what, you, what kind of clothes you wore in order to officiate. And then you would make a point about something that really mattered. And now there are just so many of us. I mean, the, the classes at Leo Beck College where I trained and later taught are sort of equal numbers of men and women. Sometimes they're more women than men. So it, it's, it's not an issue and many of the senior posts are held by women. Robbie, would you clarify but, of for... of course, only in the non-Orthodox. Uh, you actually preempted my next question, which was to ask you to clarify for our listeners the difference between Orthodox and Reform in this particular case. Okay, so Orthodox Judaism does not really accept the idea of women rabbis. I ought to be clear and say rabbis are teachers and not priests. And therefore, the idea that a woman can't teach seems to me rather eccentric. And indeed, there are now a very few Orthodox women rabbis who call, are called rabbah rather than rabbi. Um, we don't have any in, in the UK, but there are a few in the United States. They are allowed to teach in colleges, but they don't officiate and lead services. But you don't actually need a rabbi to lead a service. A service can be led by anybody who's competent. Back in February, we spoke with Jonathan Aiken, an Irish-born British former Conservative Member of Parliament in the United Kingdom and a former Cabinet Minister. He was convicted of perjury in 1999 and received an 18-month prison sentence of which he served seven months. He told us the story of his life that has taken him from war correspondent in Vietnam to television presenter to politician to time spent in jail for perjury. He's now an ordained deacon in the Church of England and he shared the ups and downs of his career and the decisions that brought him to his current outlook on life. Jonathan, when you're in prison, you come across some people. Are they the ones responsible for reconnecting you with your faith, with your Christianity? I'm thinking of Paddy the Burglar. Well, Paddy the Burglar definitely was a strong influence on me of a very good kind. He, like me, had been born in Dublin. We um, made that connection. And uh, one night he uh, invited me to pray with him, and which we did. And um, after two or three nights of saying prayers together, Paddy suddenly said, Oh, this stuff's too good just to keep to the two of us. And I thought he was going to bring in another Irish burglar to make our twosome or threesome. But he had a lot of gifts, Paddy, including the gifts of persuasion and charm and being a good recruiting sergeant. So he shot around the jail recruiting, saying, um, anyone want to come and pray with me and Jono tonight? And he got a handful of takers. And so this little prayer group assembled at Paddy's organization, and I always remember some of the occupations. There was a, a blagger who's an armed robber. There was a blur who cracked safe for a living. Uh, there was a dipper who's a pickpocket. There were a couple of lifers who were murderers. And there were uh, 
several more burglars and robbers of one kind or another. And um, this has made a pretty unusual uh, prayer group. Um, it um, gave a new meaning to the term a soul group. So anyway, there we were. We did form a regular prayer group and we prayed together. Do you feel forgiven of your trespasses? Oh, I certainly do. That's one of the great joys of the Christian faith. Um, you, um, God offers forgiveness to those who, in sincerity, uh, turn to him in repentance. So definitely I, I feel that I have been uh, forgiven for a great many past sins of one kind or another. Sometimes life ain't easy Filled with all the ups and downs Oh, Lord, make it easy Surround me with your love Music featured on The Leap of Faith 2 and in March we spoke with singer-songwriter Omar Simon about his early life in the Caribbean and his conversion to Islam. Basically, I'm from Montserrat. Um, well, my background, my mom was born in Montserrat. It's um, sometimes they call it the other Emerald Isles. I've heard this, yeah, um, in, in the Caribbean. In the Caribbean. Yeah. And um, it's the only island, as far as I know, which uh, celebrates St. Patrick's Day. Um, what is the Irish connection for, for the island? I mean, it goes back, I think, to almost indentured slavery, doesn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Um, you know, I think a lot of... Um, the Irish were shipped over there um, yeah. to, um, by the British. You know, so it's very interesting. But also at that age, there would have been a fair amount of influence on your faith. Well, who influenced your faith for you at that young age? Well, you know, um, in the Caribbean, people are, are normally very, they're very religious. And um, I used to go with my grandmother to Methodist Pentecostal um, church and you know, it, it was great then because, you know, you had all the musical spirit and, you know, um, I really never, ever thought about Islam, even growing up as a youth. Um, and I never was exposed really to to, to, to Muslims. Mm. Um, but this particular person, I always remember him. Um, his name was um, Raza. Mm. And he spoke to me about um, Islam and we, we as Muslim, he says, believe in the Virgin Mary, you know, Virgin Mary and the, the the miraculous birth of Jesus. May God's peace and blessing be upon him. I was surprised at things like that, you know. In, you know, did I, you feel you were being evangelized? Did you feel that you were no, being recruited? At no, that ha- hardly at all. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I I felt that, you know, he just had. Uh, an information which he wanted to share, and I, and and I, I was um, sort of receptacle, if you like, mm. to the message. What was it filling? Was was there a void? Was there was there an emptiness that it was filling, or did it displace anything? I'm no, no. I, this this is one thing that a lot of people, you know, say like you know, you know, religion. You must have if you embrace a faith, you must have must have been something they're missing. Mm. No, I you know, I had a great life growing up. Um, loved by my parents, loved by my family, never any delving in in in, in alcohol or drugs or nothing like that, you know, just yeah. in other words, clean it, living. It wasn't about being saved. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Um, it was just, as I said, it was just something where I was um, taken aback. 
that Islam was actually so close to what I was brought up with, which was Christianity. In April, one of our guests was Father Pat Collins. Father Collins finds himself inundated almost daily with calls and emails from people who believe they're battling demonic possession. His work in this area leads him to think that we have to find ways to outsmart Satan. The devil hardly is a person. The devil is characterised by chaos and alienation. And so whenever the devil is at work, you'll get those characteristics uh, being manifested. Um, So uh, I I, I see the devil as kind of a lack of relationship, alienation, darkness. And I did have an experience recently of hell. It's the only time in my whole life that I had it. I can honestly say it was the most horrible experience I've ever had. And it was one of total loss, total meaninglessness, total darkness. And it was so awful, I couldn't stay with it. I, it would only last about two seconds. If the devil were a, a clever negotiator, he would look for the weakness in you. Oh, they, the devil does. And St. Ignatius of Loyola is very interesting on that. He talks about the way in which the evil one will tempt us. And one of the ways, of course, that's notoriously true is he'd find your weaknesses like a military commander. He'd look for the weaknesses in your defences and attack you at those points of weakness. So this is addiction or anxiety or fear. And sin, of course, of one kind or another, which alienates us from God. So he would try and lead us into sin and into condemnation in order to, to rob us of the power of opposing him and his activities. So I believe that the Christian life is spiritual war, that you're constantly at war with the powers of darkness and that you have to be on your guard and defend yourself against the powers of evil. We were back with the new season in September and we looked at the role people of faith play in supporting the homeless. We heard from Father Peter McVerry, founder of the McVerry Trust. The Reverend Brian Anderson, co-chair of the Irish Interchurch Meeting and president of the Irish Council of Churches. And Sister Jean Quinn, the founder of Sophia, an organisation which for over two decades has been supporting people to recover from the trauma of homelessness. I don't know, is there anybody in government sitting around talking about it? That is one of the big issues for me, that it's, it's happening, it's, it's going on, and people like Peter and the Peter McVeary Trust and Sophia Housing are picking up what should be picked up by government. And secondly, is the children that are homeless. Um, how do we deal with that? Is this going to be a, an epidemic in their life in years to come? Because this is, that's the only thing they know. I, I believe in a very strongly in a righteous anger. There is a time to be angry. Uh, and not to be nice, nice little Christians in their nice little beautiful churches, but to stand with placards and say, this is wrong, and we believe this is why it is wrong. Um, Jesus turned the tables over, you know, gave so many examples. He was angry. And I think this is something that the churches in Ireland need to be angry about and fuel it properly, you know, and deal with it uh, well, uh, with government and, and whatever. But let's get angry. Absolutely, I agree with that. Uh, anger is a very positive emotion. People think of it as something very negative because it can often explode destructively. But anger and love go together. You cannot love somebody who's suffering unnecessarily without being angry at what's causing the suffering. So I think uh, we need to be angry. And I think we Christians need to be angry. 
this world is not the way God wanted it to be. We should be angry at homelessness in a way that we, we want to change it. And yet is there still a shadow <clears throat> hanging over people like yourselves on the ground trying to get things done of previous church scandals, etc., almost in, in some sense silencing you or, or, or limiting you in how righteously angry you can get? Well, God forgive us if we ever let fear get in the way of anger. God, God forgive us if we ever, whatever our circumstances are as churches, whatever, we've, whatever the past has been, if we allow ourselves to be put a shut up because uh, we're frightened of what might happen to us. In October, we were told the intriguing story of Sister Pascal Jenny O'Sullivan. She spent 75 years in Japan as a missionary nun. Filmmaker and relative James Creedon told us her story. I'm wondering at what point do you think was there a tipping between her Irishness or her becoming Japanese? That's why I felt with her story that it was to write her story would not capture uh, the woman um, effectively because so much of what was in interesting and intriguing and touching about her was intangible. It was in her body language. It was in the fact that she had become this, to me, this kind of blend, I think, I guess, you know, a couple of decades after the war when she was really in this environment all the time in Denenshofu, Tokyo, um, a very Swiss suburb of Tokyo. She just was surrounded by Japanese culture, but she was the reference point to the English-speaking world. Uh, she was very much proud of her Irishness. She probably taught an English that was closer to the Queen's English because you would have had to articulate in such a way that the Japanese were, you know, able to really enunciate and whatnot. But I, I don't know, it, it was a, a slow blending I think over the years and she had this high-pitched voice which is something that Japanese women tend to do they speak in a high voice maybe an octave above what would be comfortable it's seen as more um, demure feminine it's kind of an old-fashioned thing that women speak with a, a higher pitched voice in Japan she did that I think much of her body language and gestures became quite Japanese yet to the Japanese she was profoundly Irish James, you mentioned earlier about the English that she would use, but there was a lovely piece in the film where she's teaching the children to to say the word plum. Yes, that was a video that uh, had been filmed of her sometime in the 90s or noughties uh, in a classroom uh, where she was teaching uh, English using fruits, apples, oranges, plums, all this sort of stuff. But it was it was the theatre of her face, which unfortunately this radio interview won't be able to translate, but imagine a very theatrical face uh, along with uh, an equally theatrical sort of uh, um, exercise in teaching slash elocution uh, where each word was being pronounced and, and, and then the class would respond and she would respond back to them and, and it was just like a game. It was a game and she that's where you see the um, the, the teaching skill she had and the fact that she was utterly uh, suited to this job and this role. Another engaging contributor in October was Lisa Sharon Harper. She was in Ireland for the Rubicon Conference. We talked about her faith and how, as a woman of colour, her heritage has informed her. The use of the Bible can be used for good, it can be used for bad, but you particularly went back and looked at the books of Genesis. Mm -hmm. What what excited you about that? Well, I mean, I think that when 
when I was, I went on a pilgrimage about 16 years ago, and that pilgrimage really cast me into 16 years of wrestling with the scripture because the pilgrimage took me through 10 states in the south of the United States, the southern United States, and through two major stories, the story of the Cherokee removal called the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the story of the African experience on American soil from slavery through civil rights. And my family experienced both of those stories, so it was very personal. And I got to the end of that summer four weeks on the road, I got to the end of the summer and asked a critical question. What does the good news of Jesus have to say to this? What is the message? What is the good news to my third great grandmother, who was the last adult enslaved woman in our family? How could I go up to her and share with her what I thought the message of the good news was? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) She was enslaved. Hello, somebody, right? Um, She had 17 children, likely because she was what they called a breeder. It was her job on the plantation to breed money for her master. And yes. And so I asked myself, could I go up to her and tell her God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God? But Jesus died for your sin. And all you need to do is pray this little prayer and you get to go to heaven. Would she receive that as good news? And sadly, very sadly, I had to face the reality that the answer was no. So that is what catalyzed me into 16 years of of wrestling in Genesis. And Genesis, because that's where we see the clearest picture of shalom, the biblical concept of shalom. And shalom is simply what the kingdom of God smells like. It's what it looks like, and it's what the kingdom requires of its citizens. Truth-telling is central to that. Reciprocity is central to that. Justice is central to that. Grace is central to that. And so that's the character of the kingdom of God that actually has potential to change the entire world if we followed it. In October 2, we spoke with Father Joseph Loftus, a Vincentian priest who's back in Ireland after 25 years in China. He shared his story and observations with us. Now, you were there for 25 years. Yeah. And your home. Home, yes. What do you miss? What do I miss? I miss northern Chinese cooking because uh, I've been to many restaurants here in Ireland and most of them are southern Chinese. What has changed, though, uh, compared to when I left is that Mandarin is common. Uh, I have lovely experiences as recently as today of meeting somebody who's Mandarin speaking and being able to talk to them. But the one I enjoy most is in the school where I uh, work, uh, the parish I work, uh, there are quite a number of Chinese children in the school. And I come in and I speak to them in Chinese. And you can see that their brains are going into overdrive, trying to work out why is this foreigner speaking to me in Chinese. So I must be hearing him wrong. So I answer him in English <laughs> and they, they get the question. I ask him, what color are you painting that balloon? And they reply, it's green. And I said, but don't you speak Chinese? 
And they answered, yes, I speak Chinese. So they, they, and then after a while, they realized that there's, there, there's something, they have to process this strange idea that the Irishman is speaking Chinese. But you know that, you know, you come home and whether it's the returned person from China or the returned person from America, comparisons are going to happen. They're yes, inevitable. Yes. What comparisons are you forced into on a regular oh, basis? Oh, you've just woken in me a memory of the returned Yank that I had, had never thought of myself as being, but I suppose I am. I am the returned Yank. Um, and I've returned to a very different Ireland, an Ireland where migration has transformed the, 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 the country in a way that I find very exciting. I take the buses a lot. One of the things of being in China, I never drove in China, so my default mode of transport is public transport now. And so many languages constantly and I find that very exciting and the school that I work at St. Peter's School in Fibsborough has I think it's 54 nationalities in the school mm. and I find that very exciting Father Joseph Loftus Shishye Ingaida The very different story now of another priest Father Sean Fagan an eminent moral theologian and Marist priest who was censured by Rome due to his views challenging church teaching his close friend and theologian Angela Hanley shared the story he was forbidden to tell during his lifetime in her recently published book. What seems to have drawn mm. your attention to this mm. and has resulted in you writing the book mm. was that the element of censure, the yes. idea that it is only after his death that mm. you can even talk about this. Yes. What happened there? Well, the reason he couldn't say anything was because when he was censured and silenced, he was told he wasn't to tell anybody about it and that he wasn't to contact the media about it. And if words leaked out, even without his active involvement, if word leaked out that they had censured him, they would have him dismissed. So that's why, I mean, Sean was a very brave man and he didn't scare easily. But the thought of actually being laicized and dismissed from priesthood. I mean, the shame of that was almost beyond what he could bear. So he just had, he and I had so many discussions. He just like that, he said to me, when I'm dead, maybe you could find a way to tell the story. What was the human cost to Father Sean Fagan with this? It was huge. He had a man in his early 80s at that stage being told that potentially he could be dismissed from the vocation that he had given his whole life to. I mean, he went in at 18. And that he would be dismissed from the Marist congregation. Essentially, he'd be rendered homeless. Now, one hopes the Marist would have done right by him, but that's not the point. That is not. It is the principle of a thing. Do you tell a man who's given 60 years of service that suddenly he is worth nothing. I think the injustice in that is just breathtaking. Angela Hanley there, author of What Happened to Father Sean Fagan. And if you're looking for something new to watch, we reviewed the film The Two Popes a few weeks ago. We asked biographer to Pope Francis, Austin Ivory, and Barbara Walsh, chair of the Glencree Centre for Peace and Reconciliation, for their opinions on the film. 
it's very well researched, actually. Anthony McCartan, I, I read the book um, called The Two Popes, on which the film is based. And McCartan um, has done his research. He's read all the most uh, you know, significant uh, books, and he quotes regularly from my biography. So a, a lot that's in there really is, is, is not far from the truth, or there are very true anecdotes. There's a, the scene, for example, where uh, Pope Francis is phoning and booking himself a, flight, <laughs> yeah. a, a seat on a flight to Lampedusa. And that, in fact, happened because the then Secretary of State apparently advised against it. And, and you know, Francis said, no, but I want to go. And, and he apparently said, well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. And so Francis just simply phoned up an Italian. Of course, that immediately got everybody moving. So, no, no, there, there's quite a lot there, quite a lot few of anecdotes. But then there's a lot that's fiction. Basically, the conversations between Bergoglio and Pope Benedict, which is the most of the film, those are really fictional creations. And in fact, what uh, McCartan has done is, is he's, in a way, made one represent a particular view and the other represent another view. And that's where I think the weakness of the film is, because, of course, they've ended up with quite simplistic stereotype positions. But, you know, saying all that, you know, it's a dramatic recreation. It's a dramatic construction. Anyway, I felt the film's heart was in the right place. There was a lot there that is true in a deep sense. And, and I think the deepest truth that the film communicates is, first of all, that there's real affection between the two. And, and secondly, that in many ways, Benedict um, foresaw the Bergoglio papacy, foresaw the, the papacy of Francis, and in many ways prepared the way for it. Not in the way depicted in the film, um, but he did. And, and therefore, that it, at a deeper level, it captures the truth. Well, Barbara Walsh, we asked you to watch the film as well. What was your initial mm. impression? I suppose the interesting thing for me was it's like the, the curia and the bureaucracy in, 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 in the Vatican is almost seen like a solid wall and how somebody like Francis comes up against a system and how that system can be penetrated or changed in some way. So it's like a massive job. So in terms of him taking, um, you know, booking his flight or doing something which is regarded as unorthodox, having his own accommodation, driving himself, those kind of things, in a way break a whole lot of, um, honestly, the mystique, you Mm. know, of the actual Vatican itself too. Just a selection from The Leap of Faith last year. We hope you enjoyed our look back at the topics and guests that engaged us and that you'll join us next Friday evening just after 10. Before we leave you this evening... We here on the programme would like to add our condolences to the family and friends of our colleague Marion Fanukan, who died yesterday. Marion's contributions to broadcasting have been spoken of today. Marion was also involved in religious broadcasting here in RTE, including a series, Does God Hate?, from 2009. One of the episodes discussed, Does God Hate Women? Here's an extract where the programme considered how women have been treated by various religions throughout the years. On the panel were David Norris, David Quinn, Rosia Fazeli and Roisin Boyd. One of the things that occasionally crosses the mind is why do women allow men to tell them either how to dress or how to behave or whether they're clean or whether they're unclean? Well, it's not... It's not All women, no, I'm yes. not just talking... Mm. Uh, I think... I, can I come in yeah, here, Mary? I think it's a really interesting question um, as somebody who's affected by it. I mean, we live in this society, obviously, you know, where there are men and women. Um, I think there's a lot of self-hatred amongst women. Um, per, I think there's so much emphasis on how we look. I think that's a very um, important part. Like, beautiful women are the ones who are elevated. And I think there's so much emphasis on how you look on reproduction. Obviously, that's a big uh, factor, whether you have children 
children or not. So always there's this emphasis still for women, whether you're married or not, whether you're um, attractive, I think, regardless of how intelligence, whether you're a scientist or what you've yeah, contributed. I'd like to say, like, the relation between man and woman, we are not competing, we're not conflicting. It's peace, harmony and tranquility. And I have to say Provided that she does what she's told. No, no, that's not, that's not true, provided I and she do what God has told both of us. Who and does the housework? Well, how do you know what God told <laughs> this is the thing? I mean, I think that's a terrible arrogance. You know, we simply do not know. And the sooner people wake up and accept the Pope doesn't know, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Grand Ayatollah, let's have a little bit of humility and let's stop projecting our own ideas onto this Rorschach blot, which but we call God that's up in the sky. It's all hogwash. We forget, a lot of times we forget that, you know, at the end of the day, we are the human agent and it's the agency that interprets mm. the text mm. and the text has been interpreted by men and they say this equality that you're talking about, this is you want men and women to be the same. But sameness and equality differs as well, different. you see. Yes. Now, last word and then... What's interesting going. about the New Testament, when you read the New Testament, if you read Acts chapter 16, you'll see that Lydia, a woman, founded the church in her town. It met in her house. If you read Romans chapter 16, you'll see another woman, Phoebe, was a leader, was a diaconess, was a deacon. The same word used by Paul for all these other helpers in spreading the gospel. This so the early church did put women, in, give women proper respect and proper roles. It's only later we've fallen away from Jesus' teaching and what a shame. Okay, I'm going to have to leave it there. I'm over time. Listen, thank you all very, very much indeed. And thank you to all my guests. The late Marion Fanukin from a programme called Does God Hate Women? Our yesterday, Garev Anam Delish. From our producer, Sheila Gallon, and me, Michael Cummin. Good night.